Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The last time my guest on this week's show was on the podcast, it was early in the pandemic, when life was full of terror and possibility. I planned an amazing show. Remember when the shutdown happened? supposed to stay at home and you had that little memory of all the times that you said if I could just get a month off I could get my shit together I could get my life I just need a month off I planned a great shutdown I executed the worst one ever oh my god the list I made the list we all made we all made the same list. Yes, you did. All the great books you were going to read. All the great books. All the skills you were going to learn. Oh, my God. We couldn't wait to work on ourselves. If I had actually followed the list that I made, there'd be a different man standing in front of you right now. I'd be 30 pounds lighter. I'd be speaking fluent Italian. When all of you walked in, there would have been a handmade raspberry almond crumble tart on everyone's chair, on each chair. I would have hand-milled the flour this morning. You would have eaten it off of an origami plate. (laughs) This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was the one and only Patton Oswalt revealing how little he got done during the COVID-19 shutdown from his most recent Netflix special, We All Scream. Of course, the reality is that Patton has been busier than ever over these past couple of years, from putting that excellent new hour together to playing the lead role in the new film I Love My Dad, which won both the Jury and Audience Awards when it premiered at South by Southwest earlier this year and was just released on DVD, Blu-ray, and on demand. It also happens to be one of the most insane based-on-a-true-story premises as anything I've ever seen. More on that later. Patton and I talked the morning after the midterm elections, so we do get into some politics up top. That also means that, like last week's episode with Neil Brennan, this one was taped before Dave Chappelle's recent SNL monologue. I only mention that so you know why it doesn't come up when we, yes, yet again, talk about Chappelle later in the episode. Patton also shares his thoughts on Elon Musk's disastrous takeover of Twitter, why he's willing to apologize for some jokes but not others, and what it feels like to finally become an elder statesman of the comedy world. This is a really great one, so I hope you enjoy it. Here's me with Patton Oswalt. Were you up late last night watching election returns come in? No, I actually avoided that. I decided not to stress myself out. Oh, that was a good uh, good decision. Yes, I went to the Largo and did a set on Megan Stalter's show and could not have been happier. Oh, yeah. I saw that on uh, on Instagram. I think you were with uh, Natasha Legero as well. Yes, and Natasha, and it was it was really great. Yeah, I just talked to her for the second time on this podcast as well. So all in the family. That's right. She has a book out. Yeah. Her book is really, really funny, by the way. Oh, cool. Um, Yeah. Um, Well, I feel like by the time this episode comes out, anything we talk about regarding the election will be completely irrelevant because things will have changed by the hour. Exactly. I I would say that just from what we know right now, we probably won't know the full results for a while. It does seem like the the red wave did not happen so i wanted to very briefly get your your reaction to to that news at least um it's encouraging it i think it shows that a lot of people are not looking for uh thrills and insanity in place of uh admittedly dull but competent leadership i will take i think we had 4 years of uh exciting crazy leadership and we saw where that led us And I think hopefully people are realizing that government shouldn't be on your list of entertainment and distraction options. (laughs) You've got video games, you've got streaming shows, you've got the internet. The government should be boring. The government should be really, really boring. Maybe we're heading back in that direction. We need that. Yeah, we need a generation that's like, I want boring, competent people. I don't want to live in interesting times. Does seem like at least some of the craziest ones did not make it in. So that that was a good thing. 
some of the crazy ones didn't. Some of the crazy ones did. Yeah, and some we don't know yet as we're talking. Yeah, some we don't know. So we'll we'll see what happens. And some we don't know how they're going to react when they lose. But anyway, we'll uh, we'll we'll move on from that for now. Um, I want to talk about your your movie. I love my dad, which I, I got to see and, and really enjoyed the film. Um, and it's such a unique project, and I think a really great role for you. Um, so can we just sort of start at the beginning? What was your reaction when you, when that script first came to you? Cause it is such a, such an interesting and unique story. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, it, it, that's exactly the, the, it was an interesting and unique story. And, and I'm the kind of person that I watch so many films and I'm, I get turned on by really unique, interesting stories. So I think I maybe have that advantage when I'm reading scripts and choosing projects that I will always tend to go for the more risk-taking, weird, might fail in a massive spectacular way, but (laughs) trying something new is what makes it exciting. So, you know, those have always been the projects that I've been drawn to. Yeah. Did you know when you first read it that it was a true story that this really happened to um, James uh, Morosini, who who wrote and directed it and stars in it? Well, I saw saw that on the title page and I said, I don't know how true this is. And then after I read it and was blown away and then talked to him, I found out how true it actually was. And and it, it just made me want to do it even more. Yeah. It seems like, you know, as you said, it was a risky project in a way, and it really has to get the tone right. Um, and you have to really, you have to really trust um, this, you know, writer, director, um, star to, to pull it off. So what was that relationship like with him making the movie and sort of finding that, that trust so you could, you could pull this off? I think finding the, the balance of, I really, really want to serve this story and not maybe put my big peanut butter fingerprints all over it, but then also having to find some real humanity in what what really feels like kind of an inhuman character. So, so to be able to to pull those, both of those things off to me um, felt like a real coup. Felt like, oh wow, I really, I really did something here. Yeah, it's definitely a very fine line to stay sympathetic with your character. Um, I guess we should say for anyone who hasn't gotten to see the movie yet, you play a a father of a of an adult um, son who has is troubled, and he cuts you out of his life, and then you end up basically catfishing him on Facebook, pretending to be a, a woman, and getting in this very intense online relationship with him under false pretenses. I guess with good intentions to reconnect with your son, but it but it is very hard to. He does feel like a, a monster in a lot of ways throughout the movie. Well, he is this. He, he is the classic example of. But I want to do the right thing. Does don't I get credit for wanting to do the right thing? Yeah, like, right. <laughs> I have to actually follow through and do it. Oh well, that's not fair, you know. Which I think all of us have been guilty of at one point. So I tried to use that as the as my connective tether into the character. But yeah, there are some monstrous things that are done with good intentions. Let's put it that way. And I know James has. Uh, reconciled with his real life father in, in at least some way. Um, did you get to meet, talk to him, sort of try to understand this character through through the real guy? I've only ever met him over a Zoom call um, with, with James. Um, and, you know, he seems like a nice enough guy, but I think we've also learned that uh, nice, breezy, friendly people uh, can be uh, pretty messed up inside. I think we've learned that these past few years as well. So... Have you encountered people like that, even just in in Hollywood in your work, where you felt like you? <laughs> I'm in showbiz, dude. What do you? Yes, that's that's all we encounter over here. Um, he's also, I mean, this character is really a pathological liar. Um, is a big part of the the problem, um, and that must be something that I you've encountered as well. Is there any? Would you, is there anyone that you kind of could think about in your own life, or people you've um, encountered, or someone that you thought, oh, maybe I can pull from this? Yeah, so many people. I don't, not even going to go into naming them. Yeah, yeah. So many. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of people that are all about. I want to win the moment, even if it means I'm going to create more problems for myself down the line. Even if I create more lies that I have to uh, tend to and um, you know service in order to keep that plate spinning. But they'd rather win the moment, and that's the the moment looms too large for them. Do you feel like you need to, as as an actor, understand why this guy did what he did in order to to play the character? Because I know actors often talk about how, you know, every everyone thinks they're the protagonist, everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. So how did you approach that aspect of it? Well, I mean, I I, I certainly understand that the compulsion to want credit for 
uh, just wanting to do the right thing rather than doing it. I've been guilty of that myself. And I've also um, had those moments of, uh, you know, thinking, yes, I'm the, I'm the center here. I'm the protagonist. I'm the wronged hero. And then getting my head kicked sideways. Since you play a, a man pretending to be someone else on social media in this movie, I felt like it was kind of a, a natural um, segue to talk about Twitter, uh, which is having quite a, a moment right now. How are you enjoying <laughs> our new uh, free speech paradise that we're all uh, that we're all living in now that Elon Musk has taken over? Oh, it's fantastic! It's so good to see the N word coming back. I mean, that's really <laughs> the main focus of free speech is just to be able to spew as much racial bile as you possibly can. I mean, that's what the founding fathers were all about, although they were a slave owner, so fuck them. This is this is such an age-old story, and I've talked about this so many times. Um, it's somebody who wants to be funny, and they're not funny. And not everybody can be funny. Not everybody can be a rocket scientist or a business magnet. Um, Elon is a rocket scientist and a business magnet. Those are pretty great things, but he is... He demands to be seen as funny and cool when it's amazing. His fanboys are so, his, his fanboys are very predictable too. And that when you say, my God, he's not funny. And they're, they're like, dude, he is rich. And you're like, I didn't say he was poor. I said, he's not funny. Why don't you tell me one of his jokes that he said and that, that is brilliant and then prove me wrong. And they're just like, you're just jealous, man. That guy owns, he owns like five yachts. And he, you know, you're like, I, I'm yeah, again, I know. not yeah. <laughs> saying he's poor. That wasn't my criticism of him. I said, he's not funny now. And so there's just a lot of, I think there's a lot of damaged people out there that, and a lot of people that become billionaires become billionaires because they just focus on numbers and money and they can't understand why people aren't excited about that. Whereas I would way rather be with somebody who is funny and is fun to be with rather than well, this person I'm hanging out with never says anything startling or funny or 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 uh, insightful, but they do have the most money, so I guess I should hang with them. <laughs> I, I've never understood that. His particular interest in comedy is, I find, really interesting. Um, you know, his one of his first tweets when he took over was, "Comedy is now legal on Twitter," uh, and then within a week he was banning parody that's not clearly marked as parody because people were making fun of him because they he sees comedy the same way he sees money and status which is um uh, there will be the funny whereas anyone who's into comedy knows comedy and funny is constantly fluctuating and we sign up to be part of a very ephemeral uh, profession where everything we say ages immediately that doesn't really last but that's kind of the fun of it is that you're always creating but he wants that mathematical equation that I will solve for funny and then forever be the funniest one. And he doesn't understand that that's not how it works in comedy. <laughs> yeah, it just it has all. never worked that way. And so making these weird declarations, especially to comedians, it, that also shows you um, how he doesn't understand comedy. Because once you make any kind of objective declaration to a comedian, they will immediately start trying to find ways around that. That's the fun of comedy is, well, this thing isn't funny. Oh, then I got to write a joke about that. I got to find a way to make that funny. And that's been that it's way since challenge. the beginning of comedy. Yeah. If you watch um, W.C. Fields, the, the Bank Dick, or It's a Gift, uh, well, you know, you can't make fun of blind people. Okay, I'm going to find a way to make fun of a, a blind person, Mr. Muckle. You know, I will make this funny. So, um, and that, like, that's been that way since the beginning of comedy. So, of course, when he says comedy is now legal, it's like, okay, let's find out how legal it is then, Elon. <laughs> yeah. You just, you know, but, but it's because he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand it. But again, it will be like me demanding to be recognized as a rocket scientist uh, where I, it's like, but you don't have the aptitude for it. And that's fine. It doesn't make you less of a person. That's the thing that's weird. Any other profession, basketball player, brain surgeon, violinist, if you're not good at it, no one goes, oh, you can't play violin? Well, you must be a shitty person. You know, they're just like, well, you don't have that skill. But people that aren't funny think that it makes them a, a, a lesser human being where it's just it's just another skill that you don't have. But that's fine. You have other skills that are probably way more important than just making jokes. Uh, and so I don't understand people that like they, they, they feel like they have the right to be funny and they demand that people say they're funny. To me, is always always the basis for tragedy as we're seeing right now it's we're watching this this guy spent 
$44 billion to be cool. And it's <laughs> like, be, you can't become buy, a punchline. You really? cannot buy yeah. cool. You can't buy cool. And when you demand it, when you demand of comedians that they think you're funny, it's like, well, you just declared open season on yourself. Yeah. The, the decision to have him host Saturday night live uh, has, I feel like has not aged particularly well. Similar to the the Trump one, although with with Trump with, with th- there's there's a bit of cruelty with the Elon thing where it's like it feels like and now I can't I'm not really defending him because I think he's an <laughs> asshole but there was a there was a measure of mockery to that like oh okay the billionaire he hosted SNL the same way these douchebag billionaires go hunting at a game preserve where they block off like a little one acre area and then put the slowest oldest lions in there so that you can go feel like it's like he, that was like a rich man, uh, you know, hunting in a game preserve, but for comedy. Yeah. It's set up and it for was, success it was, and still was not much of a success. It was so, well, even when these guys, even when these ga- big game hunters succeed, it's always mockery because you're like, you they they blocked this animal off in a tiny area where it couldn't hide. You had a guide. You had the most high. They they gave you the lamest, weakest animal. You were never in any danger. And now you're posing over this beast as if you've somehow, uh, you know, upset the food chain with your alpha prowess. And you just want to laugh. It's so. It's so desperate and pathetic. It's so desperate and they pathetic. Had a great, they had a great scene like that in uh, House of the Dragon. Did you see that? Where um, did you watch that show? No, I haven't seen that yet. Oh well, the king is is given a is is has to kill an animal, and he they are helping him do it, and he's kind of decrepit, and it's, it oh, kind of captures God. that 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 thing exactly. Yeah, um, it's so sad. Yeah, I did want to uh, congratulate you on very briefly getting your second official. Check mark. I don't know if you saw that today. Um, what? Wait a minute. I haven't even been on Twitter <laughs> it's, yet. It's not there now, so you won't see it. This morning, he added <laughs> he added a second official check mark to all these accounts, including yours. Oh um, no! And then within a few hours, they were gone. And he said he he killed it. He decided it wasn't it wasn't working. I don't even I don't even know what the <laughs> at this point what the value of a check mark is, except for to protect your identity. But I don't. Yeah. So this was supposed to be a second check mark to protect your identity, in addition to the blue check mark, which now just means you paid eight dollars a month. Well, wait a minute. I then I want my blue check mark gone. I don't want people thinking I paid eight dollars a month. I know. That's what I was thinking. It's gonna be like a, a blue check mark of shame that you paid Elon, but I don't think it's been implemented yet. They haven't taken them away yet from people. Oh God, okay. I well then if that becomes a thing, I want my blue check mark gone immediately. I, know. I think I do too. Holy um, shit. Do you think you'll you'll stick around with Twitter though? Do you think you'll because you've been you've been very uh, you know loyal to it for a long time? Yeah, and... I mean I've, I've I've been experimenting with Mastodon. I can't quite figure the platform out yet. It's very yeah, very. I haven't even tried. There, there seem like... to be a lot of extra steps that don't need to be there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm really trying to beef up my Instagram, doing longer stories, do, like learning the tools of that. I'm gonna um, I'm actually gonna reach out to some friends who are very good at Instagram and like learn yeah, how to make do that a little better. <laughs> Talk to her. Uh, but um, yeah, Megan's great. But um, Twitter, I'm just hanging around to watch. I mean, again, this is like, um, hey, while I'm waiting for the fourth season of Succession, here's season 3.5. <laughs> and I get to watch it in real time. It's, it's fantastic. Coming up, Patton breaks down the most talked about bit from his recent Netflix special. And later, he shares what he took away from the experience of getting called out for simply posting a photo with Dave Chappelle. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my previous conversation with Patton Oswalt, as well as our episodes with other stand-up comedians like Neil Brennan, Maria Bamford, Jim Gaffigan, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Patton Oswalt. Well, I, I also want to talk about your most recent Netflix special, We All Scream, which I, I really loved. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was it was great. Um, and a lot of people, I think, including me in the review that I wrote, zeroed in on this bit uh, where you are sort of talking about the perils of patting yourself on the back for being woke. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's a bit that, that's gotten a lot of attention. So I wanted to talk a little bit about it. You know what doesn't age well? Woke. <laughs> It really doesn't. I'm woke, I think. But you know what? I won't be someday. And so will all of you. (laughs) Be woke, be open-minded, just don't pat yourself on the back. Because that will bite you in the ass. Because everyone that's getting canceled now for not being woke was woke about something. They just couldn't keep up with progress. Progress will always fucking steamroller you. I'm very pro-trans, very pro-gay marriage, gay rights, and pro-abortion. But no, no, no. That's not, what I'm saying is that is going to blow up in my face someday. I'll be doing comedy when I'm 70, and I will let slip something that I won't be able to keep up with. I'll be like, I don't think people should fuck their clones. Like, that'd be some weird, like. No, wait, I'm, I'm pro-trans. Fuck you, clone hater. What are the origins of that, and why did you want to, you know, express that thought in the special? Because I and I, I was very, very guilty of this. There's a lot of just woke for clout that seems to be going on, and I was just as guilty of that. Where it's like, oh, I've got to show that I'm. Whereas, what you should really be doing instead of showing how much how woke you are, true wokeness, I think, would be amplifying the marginalized voices rather than trying to put the attention back on you. I think that's one of the big things that hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign was a lot of the, the celebrities that um, kind of went to bat for her, but they made it about them first and then Hillary second. And it left a really bad taste in people's mouths where it's like, well, this is just elitism upon elitism. Yeah, and I also that, think- That's the I'm with her thing, right? That's sort Yeah, of- uh, yeah. W- which is like, no, that's not, it, it should be just about her. Like, let's, you know, so I, I try not to- um, uh, and again, I was very, I've, I've been guilty of like, look how woke and open-minded I am. I just think that progress is a, con- by definition, progress is a constantly progressing thing. And you can't just say, I'm, I'm at this point of, of awareness and this point of liberalism and open-mindedness. And thus I will always be on the vanguard of it. It's like, no, it will constantly progress and it will probably eventually move beyond you. I mean, Literally every person that's being canceled or at least criticized for not being woke were people that were formerly very, very woke and very, very much on the cutting edge and the vanguard of progressivism. But progressivism outpaced them and they just either couldn't keep up or they reached some weird point that they couldn't cross. And it's sad when that happens. You would think that you would always be able to progress with things. But I'm just very, very careful about I, I'm because of some mistakes I've made. I'm very, very careful about con- being self-congratulatory about my own wokeness. Where it's like, but you, there's no real struggle that you're actually going through. Maybe highlight the struggle and ease the struggle of other people that are on the outskirts that are trying to get in, trying to get into this world that you've kind of been living in in some in some genuine comfort. Um, and you know, I, I think I'm also haunted by once Obama was elected in 2008, I was very guilty of this. A lot of people, there was a lot of back padding and a lot of, well, we solve racism. We can all relax and we can all relax and be ironically racist now because racism's over. <laughs> and a lot of us ended up laying down 
the blueprint for a lot of alt-right trolls and a lot of alt-right um, uh, agent provocateurs. So, you know, you know, I hope that we, re- it seems, especially like in this midterm, we remembered that dark lesson from uh, 2010 when things suddenly blew up in our faces and especially the lesson of 2016, which is um, it, it shouldn't consume your life, but it's a constant thing you have to tend to. You know, it, it is it is a battle out there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you have or you are seen as a, a very progressive comedian, but there have been instances where, as you said, things, you know, you, you're you can't be as woke as you want to be forever. Um, and I think there's and also stuff that I did in the past is has aged horribly. And and you have to again, there's such a there's this weird false alpha thing about I never apologize. I regret nothing, which is like that to me is again, that's that's the big game hunter posing over the old wheezy elephant that he just shot. You are actually showing a lot of terror and insecurity. It's really scary to apologize and go, oh man, I totally fucked up. Um, that was something that now I know better. Didn't know better back then. Now I do. And I've moved, you know, um, but it's the people that just dig their heels in and go, no. I'm not, you know, why do we, it's, I don't know why you wouldn't want your art form to progress. It's good that, it's good that they're, same with films, same with novels. It's good that there's shit that doesn't age well. That means that we've moved forward, you know? Could you imagine going back and watching Revenge and the Nerds and going, nothing wrong with this movie? You're like, yeah. no, no, there's actually, <laughs> we've learned a lot of shit since then. That's actually good. That's actually good. And it's good that that movie exists because it's a, it's a snapshot of that time and how uh, how people very casually thought about some pretty grim shit that they thought was okay, that they thought was like a punchline. When you watch The Bad News Bears, which is one of my favorite movies, there's a whole scene where he's driving drunk with a bunch of unseatbelted kids in a convertible, <laughs> and it's done for laughs. Same in the movie Hooper. There's a whole drunk driving sequence in a rocket car that's done like, isn't this hilarious? And you're going, it's... Yes, it's it's it was funny at the time. Not saying it wasn't funny at the time, but we've moved the fuck on, and that's actually good. Well, one of those people who is always seen as being on the cutting edge, who now is not by a lot of people, is Dave Chappelle, um, who you know I can't help but thinking about in this conversation. And you had that experience of posting a, a photo of him and and just sort of a very innocuous photo of like, hey, here's me with my friend, and it got some really surprising pushback, or I don't know if it was surprising for you, but, um, and then you ended up kind of posting a long thing about, you know, not necessarily fully apologizing, but, but addressing the concerns. Um, what was your takeaway from that whole experience of, of, from posting the original photo to deciding to, <laughs> to, to respond to it and, and everything that, that went with that? It was a very freeing experience because it showed that, oh, no matter how much nuance and thought you put into something, um, people will just be pissed at it anyway. So you may as well try to do the best you can and apologize when you can. When I posted the photo of David's, hey, it's two old friends. We're, we're hanging out. It's great. It was great to see him. When when you start headlining, you don't get to see a lot of your friends anymore because you're all headlining, you know, doing either shows in the same night. And, it, and we, oh my God, I get to see him. He's in Seattle. I'm in Seattle. Yay. And we talked. And then um, there were a lot, there was a lot of pushback in my comments from it was two things that happened. One that was um, a lot of pro trans and trans people were saying, I don't know if you've seen his latest special, which I hadn't seen at that point, because again, you're so busy. You don't get to watch stuff. And they were like, there was a lot of really, you know, hurtful stuff in it. And we thought you were an ally and blah, blah, blah. And then there was also a lot of these alt-right shuds that were suddenly claiming me as being on their side and, and sharing views on, on trans people. And I was like, what the fuck? So then I tried to, I wrote what I thought was a very nuanced, um, both an apology to the trans community and then also just this embracing of, hey, we used to be able to have friends that we disagreed with certain things on. And because Dave has done so much fucking good, um, not just for, um, I don't know, I, I can't speak to the bigger good he's done for the comedy community, but as far as me watching his comedy and seeing his insights, especially on race and not just race, but economic disparity, looking at race through that prison, which I had never done. And he really opened my eyes to a lot of that stuff. I mean, there's some, there is genuine, genuine brilliance in there, but 
brilliant people can have weird blind sides to them. I don't think that he is as, I wish he was more open-minded on trans issues, uh, but I also can't deny his genius on just about every other fucking issue. So, you know, that's one of those things where it's like, well, I got to take the good with the bad here. He's still my friend. I'm still a fan. I don't agree with his um, uh, stance on uh, trans people. And, and, and I and I did go and watch The Closer and some of the trans jokes really did bother me. But then some of the other jokes were fucking brilliant. So, you know, that, but again, that is, I think that is the the, one of the reasons I really liked being in comedy was you saw these people with, I mean, like Sam Kinison had some of the most brilliant takedowns of organized religion, like genuinely like sounding the alarm for these snake oil salesmen. And then he would turn around and do the most vicious, even for the time, anti-gay, um, like uh, uh, anti-factual stuff about AIDS and and you're like, how can how can someone be so insightful about this aspect of this harmful aspect of society and then turn around and be this ignorant and hateful? There's something really amazing about that to me. That how can he not see these two things? It doesn't it didn't diminish his brilliance in taking down religion, but it, it really, you know, makes oh my you know, there's just I don't have, I still don't have a specific answer for it, you know? I mean, in terms of being able to communicate and be friends and learn from each other in the comedy community with people who have these differing views, it seems like that's a, it's a good thing. And it, and it, it's sort of a, it should be an example for other people who have just become so siloed and so unable to, you know, understand anyone who has any difference than them. But, but there's, but it's a tricky issue. There's this real all or nothing sports mentality that's been kind of put on to the arts and onto politics. And I think it's really, really dangerous. I mean, the, the, if, if you really boil down what I wrote in my apology, what I was saying is Dave Chappelle is a genius. He's a friend. And I disagree with him on a bunch of shit. And, and that's how life is. I mean, that's just life. You, you, there's, I mean, I, I, I read, um, I remember my, my daughter, when she was growing up, some of her favorite books were the Roald Dahl books, and they're wonderful books to read to kids. And you're like, and then you go read his opinions about Hitler and the Jews. And you're like, oh my fucking God. Like, <laughs> how can someone be this insightful about like what it's like to be a child? And then turn, you just, there's just all this weirdness in people, you know? And, and, and you're going to, and I think you have to decide how much, how much of what I disagree with can I accept? Um, and have it not diminish the other things. And it's a, it is a case by case basis. I don't think you can put that umbrella of, well, you said that guy's stuff was okay. So you must be okay with it. And like, no, it's, it's, it's a person by person basis. Yeah. Well, I thought what's really interesting about what you said about your reaction to this whole experience is that it made you feel like I just have to do my best and apologize and always, you know, try to, to be thoughtful. And I think there's another brand of, of comedian or person who, takes from that experience. Okay, now, you know, fuck all you people. I'm going to dig in and and that doesn't give make up it. I mean, and and that's that's we've seen people go that way too and so I think it's it's really I mean, admirable I, the I way you the way you react. I don't to have it. a I don't have a fuck all these people mentality, but I do have a I'm going to do what I do. When I screw up, I'm going to I'm going to apologize where I see fit. There's going to be people that are going to be pissed at the apology and I can't I can't so now I can't worry about either side. I got to just take in, and there's other people, look, there's other stuff that people have demanded apologies from that I'm like, nah, I'm not apologizing for that. That's not, that actually was okay. That you, you, you that was a joke. Or there's also people that, again, there's a lot of uh, trolls online, a lot of concerned trolls that they don't really care. They weren't offended. They're just seeing, can I get them to apologize? This will be great. It's, it's, it's just scalp hunting. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I am curious, you know, you've talked a lot in your, in your special, your last couple of specials about aging, getting older. Once you get past 50, everything's fatal. I, when, when I was in my 20s, I would walk into propellers and put some Bactine on it. I was fine. And now if a pine cone falls near me, my spine implodes. I'm interested in your perspective, even just in the comedy community. You know, I feel like you you started out as a, you know, young indie comic um, in the alt scene and you were kind of 
an upstart and now you really are an elder statesman in this in this uh, business, which I don't know if you feel like, or if that's, if that, hope that's not offensive in any way, but. I'd like to think I'm an elder statesman. The elder statesmen in my business are, are amazing people. If I could be included in, along with people like Colin Quinn and, um, you know, um, uh, Tom Papa and, and, you know, Seinfeld and people like that, Chris Rock, that'd be, that'd be fine with me. Those are amazing minds. Um, but in 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 my in my viewpoint nothing has changed in terms of i always talked about whatever was going on with me at that moment i was all about creating these time capsules i i i still find it hilarious when every now and then someone will go i was listening to your first album and you're talking about how you're never going to get married and have kids and uh so what do you say i'm like yeah, um, gotcha. <laughs> because that's how i felt at the time do you write letters to time magazine and go I was reading an issue of yours from 1982, and you uh, talk about how Reagan is president. Well, <laughs> um, uh, anything to say about that? It's like I, I was reporting on what was happening at the time, you idiot. Like that's so, you know, I like that there are now these snapshots of, oh, never getting married, never having a kid. Hey, I'm getting married. We're talking about having kids. Oh, my God. Now I'm a dad. Like you see the progress. Yeah, well, it's that progress and evolution like we were talking about. And by about. the way, I think most people go through that. I think most people in their lives are like, I'm never, never getting married. Are you kidding? I'm 22. This is awesome. Then maybe I should settle. You know, like everyone goes through that. That's fine. That's fine. Are you already working on your next hour? Are you, are you thinking about what, what the next special could be? Yeah. I'm, and, and it's it's rough because right now, because the special's out and, and what this is one of those weird things where the special came out, but leading up to the special coming out, usually I try to like do a lot of shows and work on a next hour, but I was promoting the movie. So now I'm doing shows and I'm trying to do all new stuff. I did a, I did a, um, a set on Megan Stalter's show last night and I was trying all new stuff and oh boy, did it not work <laughs> that, that, but that's really refreshing to go to remind yourself and, and also let other communities know no matter how far you get in your career, there's going to be times you're going to try new stuff and it ain't going to work. And that's totally cool. It means you're trying new stuff out. Yeah. How do you handle it when it doesn't go well? I laugh at it and go, wow, that's not, I remember I was watching, um, I, there's Jim Norton post these, Jim Norton is really cool at posting clips of him doing stand up, and he's trying out new stuff. Like his Instagram is, Half of the stand-up clips are about him, his jokes not working, and then him dealing with them not working. And he was trying to do this bit about rock stars wearing tight white pants and how you're lying because you're bulge. And it just didn't you can see the idea and he doesn't land it. And then he and he goes, This bit is bombing. It is <laughs> bombing. He's like, Thank you guys for helping me murder that bit. Because because <laughs> you can tell that he was like, I think I can make this work. And this was clearly like his third or fourth night trying to do it. And he just goes, well, you just saw a bit that's never going to happen. I tried and, <laughs> and, and you all, it's almost like the audience is, is in a weird way, your consultant and therapist going, we've let you do this a few times. And now do you kind of see how we're re you're like, you know what? You're right. Thank you. Message received. <laughs> This isn't a bit. Yeah, it's great that he then puts that out in the world. Well, I think that's really great for other comedians to go, oh, yeah, that's right. You're supposed to be. It's not. Yes, if, if, if they're really like a uh, if it's a big paid show and you're headlining. Yes, try to kill and do. But if you're at the cellar or the improv on a Tuesday night, you, you should absolutely be trying new shit. And I think comedy fans want to see that, too. And even if it doesn't go well, they appreciate it. Yeah, they go, man, I just I saw. I mean, you know, I, I've I've been um I've been in rooms with. um where like Seinfeld's gone up or Chris Rock has gone up and they've tried new things and they just like, well, that's holy shit. That needs some work. And, and you <laughs> feel privileged to see that in it's in, in like in progress, like, wow, he's, he really doesn't, it, it's not, they work, they create this stuff from nothing. It, it, if, if anything, it makes them even more amazing. I'm forever grateful to Seinfeld for that moment in his documentary comedian where he shows you, he's doing a bit about think tanks and he goes up and he has a raw version of it and it just doesn't work. But you can see in his face, and I've felt this where you're like, I know there is something here and why can't I find it? And then, and I think he does a couple of scenes of him trying to do this bit about like, how do you get fired from a think tank? And it's just not fucking landing. And then he, um, uh, and then he's sitting with, um, uh, George Wallace and I think Colin Quinn and yeah, and they're just I remember this, yeah. and they're banging the bit around and then you see the moment where he finds it because George Wallace goes, man, sometimes you just don't think 
like like the guy getting fired. And it you see Jerry's like whole thing. And I've had moments like that where I'm with my friends and I'm like, I got this thing and where, and then they'll go, oh, but this, that's what will make it work. And you're like, fuck, that's right. Yeah. Sometimes you can't see it if you're, if you're so in it. Yes, exactly. That, and again, it, it's why, um, uh, it's why I'm so happy that I'm surrounded by, you know, people that are funnier than me. It's the best thing about my career is <laughs> my circle of friends are all funnier than me and it just makes me have to be better. Um, so what I want to do with the rest of our time is our segment called the first laugh, which we weren't doing when you were on the, uh, the show the last time. So oh, okay. this will be great. So starting uh, all the way back, do you remember the first piece of comedy or one of the first that really made you laugh hard as a kid? It really cracked me up. I remember watching the Carol Burnett show with my parents and it was the, it was the mama's family segment where they're playing uh, um, charades and, but they're also like Vicki Lawrence and Carol Burnett's characters are having a fight. So it's a comedy sketch, but they're all yelling at each other. And there was something so funny when they're, they're trying to do like first word, proper name, and, and they're doing the, the same, and they're, but they're yelling. And, and I, I just remember it laughing so hard because it was funny, but no one was being like goofy and silly. They were all so angry and wound yeah, up. And that they were committed. something of, yeah, and it was it was I'd never seen that kind of because up to that point when I, I was like a little little kid, but you know, comedy was a everything was silly and funny, and they were doing it as if it was a dramatic scene, and it made it even funnier. That's and it was great. one of my first lessons in like sometimes the funniest thing is when someone is taking themselves way too seriously, and that makes things so much funnier. Do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny that you could make other people laugh? It's not that I ever felt like I could, was funny. I felt the, the first moment was when I felt like I could hang with the other funny kids. There was never a class clown. There were, there was a cla class clown. There was like a comedy click. There was all these kids who were super into comedy. And the fact that I could just memorize comedy and just, I got the rhythms of it somehow. And, and I could hang around with them and just riff and, you know, go back and forth with jokes. That really was that sense. That was probably in middle school where I'm like, oh yeah, that, the comedy kids, that's what we're all drawn to. This is really real for us. When you think about your very first time getting up and doing stand-up for real, uh, <laughs> what, where were you? How did it go? Uh, what, what stands out in your memory? I was at uh, Garvin's Comedy Club. It was July 18th, 1988. Um, I remember Dave Chappelle going up that night. I, I believe it was his first night. He, he says it might have been, he might have also gone on a week earlier, but that's a whole other story. He was 14 and he went on and it was like, looked like he'd been doing it for 30 years. He was that good. Was that intimidating? I went on, huh? Was that intimidating for you to, to see him what? and then- No, because it was kind of exciting because I had never done comedy. I'm like, oh, you can be young and be have, because I was like, do I have any, I'm 19 years old. What the fuck do I have to talk about? And he was amazing. And so I went up, uh, Blaine Kapatch was the host. Um Again, one of the uh, so lucky Good that I met that him. First night, yeah, yeah, and also this guy Mark Voice, um, who was just one of the funniest comedians I'd ever worked with. And he, and so I went up, and nothing. I didn't get any laugh, but I did one. It wasn't even a joke; it was like an idea. And I heard Mark Voice just go ha like that, like <laughs> acknowledging there's something there, and just that little tiny toehold is what brought me into the world, and also that the fact sustained that sustained you. Yeah, but also way before I went up, I'm just sitting there. I don't know these people, but I'm at a table and I'm watching Blaine Kapatch and Mark Voice and everyone ju just riffing back and forth on an evening. And they're going to, you know, and I'm like, this is the world I want to be in. I want to be in this world. So that was really amazing. Do you remember the first joke that really worked that you felt like, oh, I might have something here uh, and that you would sort of use uh, at a bunch of shows after that? Um. I know those early jokes because there was a lot of jokes that I did that worked, but they were, it was very much hacky road shit. I was doing like, I would do stuff in DC and Baltimore, but then a lot of my early gigs were all out on the road and like the hinterlands of Virginia and Kentucky and Maryland and North Carolina. So I learned very quickly to get good on the road. And that was a lot of like just pandering bullshit that I got. And, and then, so when I moved to San Francisco, my, what I remember most was going on at the Holy City Zoo. And that's where I'm people like Greg Proops and Margaret Cho and Karen Kilgariff and 
you know, people like that are on stage. And I went up with my A road stuff thinking, I'm going to kill. I'm going to absolutely kill with this stuff because I kill on the road. And it just ate it in front of all these amazing. So it was like, oh, that's the next level of comedy. So then it took about another six. I, I very symbolically, this is such a pretentious, uh, tortured poet bullshit thing to do. But I went across the street from the Holy City Zoo in a Taiwan restaurant sat at the first table, tore all the pages out of my comedy notebook and trashed them <laughs> and then wrote that day, May 5th, uh, 1992 on a blank page. Like I'm starting totally fresh. Do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? I remember, I remember one time I did a comedy club. This was in Virginia. And, um, uh, the 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 owner was going to fire me from the week because her mom didn't like my comedy, even though I was doing really good sets. But I was still at this that green stage where I'm like, I've got to make the comedy club owners happy because in my mind they're all connected in this massive network. And there's no way to advance unless you make each one happy. So I was like, I I remember I tried to do a set where I I like made it cleaner. I don't even I didn't even know her mom. I I you know. But like I was imagining this phantom mom that I was now <laughs> structuring my act to please. And it ate it so fucking hard. And I remember I was panicking like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm not going to be a comedian. Like I can't. And and like looking back at it now, it's like, what a fucking chump. But I should have just said, <laughs> unless your mom is buying a room full of drinks, I don't need I don't need to change shit. You know what I mean? Like that idea of like my well, my mom doesn't like you. I'm like, who fucking cares? Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. that is to me is I I just love I love that memory. It's like that. There's no better moment than when you panic over some of unimportant bullshit, and then what you do is the breakthrough is when you go, oh wait a minute, this doesn't fucking matter. I'll do whatever the fuck I want. Like that's amazing to me. Um, you mentioned the San Francisco crew of comics, but is there uh, a memory that you have about the first time you met? maybe someone from a, a generation before you who was a huge comedy hero of yours and just what it was like to to meet that person for the first time. Well, when I first started off doing comedy, it was back in 1991. I don't know if I, he would, I would say he's from a different generation, but it was like meeting a hero that I didn't realize, I didn't even know who he was. Um, one of the first professional weeks I ever did in 1991 at, at the now, at Charlie Goodnights in Raleigh, North Carolina, I was opening for Bill Hicks. I'd seen a lot of comedy up to that point that I thought was really good. And then I saw Bill Hicks and it was like, oh, this is a different. And we were not, I'm not, we did not become friends. We did not, it was very disturbing when Bill Hicks died and suddenly every comedian was his best friend. I was like, I don't think that he had friends, but he kept it very, yeah. So we, I mean, we spoke like two or three times. One thing he said to me was, because then once I saw his stuff, I really wanted to impress him. So I would come out and just go immediately dark and then, and kind of lose the audience. And then he would say, uh, he goes, you got to walk him to the edge, Patton, which was like, <laughs> oh shit. Yeah, that's right. Even like every, everyone talks about how Bill Hicks didn't give a fucking shit. Bill Hicks could kill in any room. He knew he could open his, his set with the most accessible, still hilarious original stuff. And then slowly walk the audience into the darkest realms that they were not prepared for. And all everyone took, from Bill Hicks was, you got to go up, you got to walk the whole room. It's like, Bill Hicks didn't walk that many rooms. He did walk some rooms, but, uh, and, and same with Andy Kaufman. They were brilliant fucking comedians. They were brilliant. They knew how to kill and get laughs anywhere. It wasn't all alienation. No. And I think a lot of, I think again, I think a lot of mediocre comedians took the, um, oh, I'll just alienate people. Okay, good. <laughs> then, they, then, they have, then they have a safe out. They have a safe out, like I'm just doing what Bill Hicks did. It's like, no, Bill Hicks annihilated. Finally, I like to ask my guests about what's making them laugh right now. I know you're a, a fan of comedy. So is there anything that has made you laugh? Any comedians, anything you've seen on TV, anything um, that you would shout out that really made you laugh recently? Well, I mean, you know, um, Tim, uh, uh, the uh, I Think You Should Leave show on Netflix just destroys me. A lot of podcasts, um, uh, My Neighbors Are Dead, uh, Valley Heat. People are doing really weird conceptual stuff with their podcasts that um, are really, really make me laugh every week. Double Threat with Tom Sharpling and Julie Klausner is just mm -hmm. nonstop. Oh, yeah. like, They're great. Brilliance. Um, and then a lot of just like, I still go for just pure 
absurdity in the face of this the seriousness that we're forced to shove our face into every day right. you know um uh eric andre uh tim and eric you know stuff like that i just comp- pure nonsensical bullshit really really makes me happy and then as far as just like funny but then human and uplifting you know stuff like um abbott elementary thank god that show exists um, such a such a, uh, a respite every week. Yes. Oh, thank God. A mythic Quest is weirdly as, as as dark and weird as it can get. It, it's that's also a very weirdly sweet human show um, that has a real genuine heart to it. Mainstay is uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Um, so yeah, just those things really, really. Oh, um, uh, Black Lady Sketch Show really, really uh, cracks me up. As as much as yes, it is a black lady sketch show it has that key and peel um sense of hey not every sketch has to be about us being black and struggling sometimes we just want to also do goofy nerdy bullshit and and it's just it's great when they like it's oh it's people having fun and just enjoying the fuck out of themselves oh and also um that the show um how to with um oh john wilson my god i i David Cross told me, he's like, you have to watch this show. And oh, I that show. watched the first episode and I just watched both seasons in one sitting, like basically in a day. I could not get over how brilliant it was. Um, and I, I cannot wait for more. He's doing more, right? I believe so. We, God, we did a, so. an episode with him on, on this show and he was fascinating to talk to about what he does. So He is amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. I always love talking with you about comedy um, and this oh, was thank really, you. really great. Um, so thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks, man. All right. As I said, it is always such a pleasure chatting with Patton. So I want to thank him again for being here and all of you for listening. A lot of my guests struggled to come up with one thing that made them laugh recently, and I love Patton because he just listed off like 10. I Love My Dad is now available on DVD, Blu-ray, and on demand wherever you get movies. And his latest stand-up special, We All Scream, is streaming now on Netflix. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.